Okay, uh, why don't you just uh, uh, say the alphabet? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R. <laughs> okay, we're good, inshallah. Okay. So we are looking at, uh, for this first part, we're looking at Al-Ghazali, uh, the book of knowledge. And so, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, na'ahmaduhu wa nasalli ala rasulihil kareem. Okay, why don't you teach it to me? Okay. So, um... I started with the foreword by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, um, mm. where he talked about Imam al-Ghazali's life. Um, so Imam al-Ghazali was born to a poor, um, to a poor father uh, who uh, sent him actually to an like an elderly Muslim, like not like a scholar, but like just an elderly Muslim person. Uh, but Imam al-Ghazali, along with his brother Ahmed al-Ghazali, uh, were both. Uh, left orphans after the death of their father at a very young age and he left some money with that elderly Muslim person um, just to teach them a little bit about Islam and then once that money ran out that uh, elderly Muslim person sent them to a, to a university for them to study so after studying at that university for a little bit um, and he was born in uh, Tus which is in Iran um, he studied under Sheikh Radkani in uh, Tus uh, where he started studying like Islamic jurisprudence uh, and theology. After studying with him, he went to Jurjan, which is another place in Iran, close to the Caspian Sea. Um, and he studied over there with um, for a little bit. Then at the age of 19, he went back to Tus, committed everything he had to memory, um, where he studied in Jurjan and previously studied in Tus. After that, at the age of uh, 22, he went to, uh, to the... Nizam capital of the dynasty at that time, which was the uh, Seljuk dynasty in Asia. Uh, and he started studying with the Imam al-Haramain at that time, which was Sheikh al-Juwaini. Uh, and with Sheikh al-Juwaini, who at the time was a very, very well-known uh, theologian and scholar, he began to study with him. Um, so the two of them worked together with understanding um, Islamic jurisprudence and Islamic theology, Islamic ethics, all these different things. Um, and then after Imam al-Juwaini's death, um, Imam al-Ghazali went to the uh, court of the Nizam al-Mulk at that time um, and they basically tested him with a bunch of legal discourse tests and he showed them uh, the amount of knowledge that he attained subhanAllah and as a result um, he became the professor eventually of one of the colleges that when Baghdad so he began to teach there uh, and he was teaching like um, Islamic ethics, Islamic jurisprudence and um, as he was teaching, he was also, you know, engaging in debates, writing different works, all these different things that caused him to gain a lot of fame in the Muslim community. And when he started getting all this fame, he took an intensive look at himself and he realized that a lot of what he was doing, he said in his own uh, autobiography that everything that he was doing, and not everything, but most of what he was doing was... Uh, as a result, not of pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but getting fame. So because of that, he decided to quit the job that he was doing and travel to Damascus. And so he went to the Umayyad Mosque and uh, took like a small corner of the masjid and started studying over there. So when he went over there, um, he, uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf that said that that's most likely where he started his Ihya Ulum uh, in Damascus. Um... Imam al-Ghazali realized that one of the most prominent problems 
of the people at his time was that there was a disunity among the Muslim Ummah, and that was caused by rising dynasties and rising empires. Like you had the Fatimid dynasty coming in, you had different dynasties um, encouraging different viewpoints of Islam, and then you also had um, a lack of interaction between the scholars at the time and the uh, and like the Muslim masses. So as a result, the Muslim masses didn't really know like what the actual correct viewpoint of Islam was. Um, so he realized that along with Imam al-Juwaini, um, and he adopted Imam al-Juwaini's thinking where Imam al-Juwaini actually says that he was strongly opposed to the blind following of any particular tradition, even if it was Muslim. He realized that Jewish children, uh, he says this in his, uh, in his words, that uh, Jewish children tended to become Jewish, Christian children tended to become Christian, and Muslim children tended to become Muslim. So he said, like, that's not what was correct. Um, rather, a Muslim child should become Muslim when he realizes his truth, when he realizes why he's becoming Muslim. Um, and he quoted the prophetic hadith that the Prophet ﷺ said that every child, every infant, is born on the fitrah, but it's their parents who engrave the beliefs of, uh, of any other religion or any other belief onto them. So Imam al-Ghazali really became interested in why, uh, in like the why of understanding Islam, the why of becoming Muslim, uh, along with Imam Joini. So in addition, um, Imam, uh, like, because of that understanding of why Islam is important or why it is important to become a Muslim or why it is important to find your own truth, he began to study Asul al-Fiqh. Uh, which is like the study of ethics and Islamic jurisprudence. So when he started studying ethics, Imam al-Ghazali memorized um, the book of uh, the ethicist at the time, like one of the greatest scholars of that time, which was Imam al-Raghib al-Isfahani. Um, but one thing that was common for uh, Imam al-Ghazali to do uh, was that he wouldn't just regurgitate whatever he learned. Um, rather, he would add his own modifications and criticisms to whatever he read. Uh, and because of that, he was able to take different works from different people and tie them all together. Like, different works from different generations, different tra uh, different traditions, and put them all together. And, like, for example, one of the things that he did was that he took uh, the beliefs of Aristotle and combined them to the Quranic principles. And because of that, like, he was one of the pioneers of doing that because the previous scholars at the time disregarded Aristotle's views as just being Hellenistic. They didn't even look at them. So like what he did was that he realized Aristotle believed in like um, the soul having three compartments, which was reason, courage, um, reason, courage, and uh, uh, and emotion. I think was the third one. Um, and so he said like when these three three things are brought to a perfect balance, then a fourth virtue comes, which is justice. Um, but Imam Al Ghazali argued that balance was the key. Uh, instead of just having a fourth uh, cardinal value, he realized that like balance was the cause of like everything in the world, that even humans, when they stand, are balanced. So he argued on that, and he developed uh, Aristotle's argument to his own, um, according to the Quranic principles. So because of that, um, he received a lot of criticism from different people, uh, and this criticism was rooted in a couple of different things. Uh, one of his very, very prominent critics at the time was Imam uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, um, who realized that like, when he was doing like his jurisprudence, he argued that it wasn't important to look at the rule itself, 
but rather why the rule is being implemented. And as a result, like Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, he said, no, we have to have a more literalist approach um, because if you look at the why, then you disregard whatever the, prof uh, the Prophet Sallallahu said. You know, you follow what the Prophet Sallallahu said, even if you know a reason for it or not, um, which is what he believed in, that's the criticism. Then the, another criticism that the, uh, that, uh, they had of him was that he used a lot of da'if, which are weak hadith. Um, but his response to that was that because he's not a scholar of hadith and because his work does not stem off of like the hadith themselves or like the, the field of hadith, um, the Prophet or the, the scholars at the time actually, they permitted the use of da'if hadith for matters uh, like, for example, if you were talking about like the virtue of doing good deeds, it would, like the scholars believed that it was permissible to use the Darif Hadith at that time, in that context. So he used that argument. Um, and then a couple of other things, like he focused on um, like Islamic jurisprudence um, and legal philosophy. Uh, so he developed the Maqasidi school, which later developed into the Qarafi and the Shatabi schools of legal philosophy. Uh, and he wrote like four major books of legal philosophy. Um, and then, like I said, his, like, his philosophy when it came to uh, like legal, uh, legalities was that uh, it's important to not look at the rule. It's, not, it's important to look more as to why the rule was implemented as opposed to the rule itself. And because of that, he argued that if a rule was being implemented without looking at why it was implemented, that rule can be abused and used unjustly. Yeah. Okay, good. So, uh, a couple a couple points of uh, clarification as well as some points building on the stuff that you're saying. Um, so, uh, uh, one thing that is interesting just is his name. His name is Muhammad bin Muhammad bin Muhammad, right? Yeah. Al-Ghazali. And, and so there's difference of opinion of what Al-Ghazali, uh, the name is, is referring to, whether it's Ghazal or Ghazal and such, so forth and so on. But yeah, the, he's essentially, the bulk of his life is from Persia. What's interesting is that in modern times we associate Iran with Shia tradition. Mm. Iran doesn't become a majority Shia state until about the 1600s. Mm. It was a majority of Sunni, uh, it was a majority of Sunni tradition, and among the schools, it would be majority Shafi'i. And in terms of what he does with his learning from the various scholars, especially Imam al-Jawaini, uh, uh, I believe he actually studied from Imam al-Jawaini before he became the Imam of the Haramain. That uh, his study with him was before that, or began before that. But uh, what Imam al-Ghazali does, and you also brought some attention to this, is that he does a lot of synthesizing, yeah. you know, these, these different people and putting them together. Aristotle was already part of Muslim tradition, but... He is also uh, revisiting uh, Aristotle in terms of the benefits and the categories and, and, and such. So he is essentially an Aristotelian. And much of Islamic thought today is still Aristotelian in terms of logic, in terms of categories and such, which is especially interesting because much of Western thought in its foundation is still Aristotelian as well. Nevertheless, if we look at the way Islam evolved in other places like the Indian subcontinent, you have some schools that are still Aristotelian in nature and some that are actually synthesizing Hindu categories and categories that we find in yoga traditions into, into their, their outlook. Um, and some of those, just like, uh, so like the Day of Mondays would be more Aristotelian 
whereas some of the particular Sufi schools would be more uh, a, a merger of Islamic forms in, in Hindu categories and such. That's a topic for, for a different time. Uh, another thing is, is uh, one of the, the ways he's especially appreciated is that he's merging uh, Islamic law, in Ihya especially, he's merging Islamic law with, with the Sawaf um, into, in theory, like a, a seamless whole. So it, is, it was and is still common that for your fiqh matters, which would be matters related to action, related to behavior, you go to one type of sheikh. And then for matters of the heart, you go to a different type of sheikh. And what Ghazali is doing is he's also synthesizing those together. That's especially part of what he's appreciated for in his brilliance. As, as you're pointing out, he's actually known for many things. Uh, what makes Ihya uh, tower above many of the works before and since is the fact that he does that. And another way to think about what would be the next phase would be to synthesize uh, those aspects with the collective and perhaps even governance. That um, He also has written about governance and such, but that part has not yet been synthesized together into a whole, if it can be. Uh, the, the debate with uh, Ibn Taymiyyah is not so much Imam al-Hazali and Ibn Taymiyyah because they live about 100, 120 years apart. Yeah. Like, uh, it's uh, Ibn Taymiyyah's criticism of him and then people's responses uh, to his criticism. So one big one is, is the approach to law. It's, uh, in my understanding, it's not so much that Imam al-Ghazali says we shouldn't look uh, 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 at the text as much as the Maqasid. We're, uh, we're definitely looking at the text, but we're also looking at the text as well as the Maqasid. So it's basically saying we're looking at the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Whereas Ibn Taymiyyah seems to be, and Ibn Taymiyyah is also harder to pinpoint because he's, he's a very, very complex thinker. He might be one of the most complex thinkers of our whole tradition. You know, you know, may Allah's mercy be upon all of them. Yeah. Um, Ibn Taymiyyah seems to lean less on the spirit of the law because that's harder to justify with text than with the text itself. Now, Ibn Taymiyyah is not a literalist where it's only the, the, the text. He's still looking at the context and, and such. Whereas Imam al-Ghazali is saying, no, you have text, you also have have the higher, the higher aims. And... Um, and I, I took one other note. Actually, those were all the all the big points. Okay, okay, very very good. Uh, alhamdulillah. Um, uh, and then, what are you gonna do next in in the the Ghazali text? Um, so I have to read the introduction. Yeah. Um, and then I'll try to get through to as much as chapter one as I can. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think uh, that's that's good. Uh, why don't you open up um, the 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 beginning of book one? And let's read a little bit of that uh, uh, together. Okay. So, so this is what uh, this is the the excellence of learning, or what uh, is no, the book of knowledge. Yeah, on um, the virtue of knowledge, education, and learning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why don't you start reading, and I'll interrupt you at various points. Okay. Perfect. God subhanahu wa ta'ala says, God witnesses that there is no deity except him, and so do the angels and those of knowledge. Surah Ali Imran, verse 18. Behold how God uh, subhanahu wa ta'ala begins first with himself, second with his angels, and third with the people of knowledge. What a remarkable way to establish honor, virtue, loftiness, and rank. God subhanahu wa ta'ala also said, God will raise 
those who have believed among you and those who are given knowledge by degrees. Okay, stop right there. So very good. So look at look at how he's also approaching these ayahs. So at one level, we just see what he's quoting the ayah, that there's mention of Allah, angels, and people of knowledge. And notice that this this theme of, of proximity that he is saying that is by design part of how Allah Ta'ala speaks. And so the biggest example of that is, is in the Shahada, that not only do we say La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, but the name Allah and Muhammad are literally next to each other. Right. La ilaha illallah and then Muhammad Rasulullah. And so, so think about this um, in terms of just the literal fact of it, but also as a way that we can infer from Ghazali in terms of the, the ontological uh, perspective he's giving in terms of just how reality is, reality operates, that so much of it is this matter of proximity. Like you'll hear from me many, many times that uh, at the center of deen is the aspect of relationships. And so, for example, we have the hadith material, but how do you really learn the sunnah? You're probably not going to learn it from the hadith. You're learning it from the practice of the people around you, some of which is taught and some of which is literally by osmosis. And so even when you're doing your hips, okay, even though you're memorizing the, the, the words on the page, you're being tested okay, by someone who's been tested, by someone who's been tested. And you're not only being tested for the words, you're being tested for the pronunciation of every letter, whether it's la or la, all the spaces and everything. But even that, it's person to person to person. How did you learn how to pray? You learn from someone who learned from someone who learned from someone. So we often speak of, of Islam as the Quran and the Sunnah to the point that the Prophet, peace be upon him, himself has said, you know, hold on to the book in my Sunnah and you'll never go astray. But what's left out in our understanding of that, who is he saying that to? He's saying that to the companions. Okay? And so, so Islam is not the Quran and the Sunnah. It is the Quran and the Sunnah delivered by the companions. So every hadith, you're also looking at who's the companion who narrated it. And there's even a whole category of hadith where we don't know who the companion is. But, but the point being that this is central to how the whole tradition operates. It's the relationships between the people. Okay? And so now from that perspective, think of how much greater it is where Allah Ta'ala is mentioning himself, angels, and then the people of knowledge. Okay? That... Uh, uh, on its own, we appreciate it as fact, but I'm saying when you look at the whole world as this realm of interaction and relationships, that's the status of the people of knowledge. It's they're that high. Okay. And then what was the second narration? Yeah, so then he's also going to raise you in rank as well as those who are given knowledge. Another aspect of our tradition is the idea of ranks or stations, or we might use some terms as maqam and tabaqat and such. And, and so another big aspect of our tradition is a spiritual hierarchy. So in terms of dunya, we try to remove hierarchies, you know, that everyone is equal. Equal where? In the law. Okay, but you're still going to have a king or a president and such that will have, they're not above the law, but they also have different decisions that they have to make. Uh, but in terms of spirituality, i.e. your relationship with the law, then in the unseen realm that we're all at different levels. Okay. And sometimes, uh, I mean, I think you get this, but I think for a lot of people that's a bitter pill to swallow because P 
people want to think of spirituality as you know almost a socialist sense that everyone's equal and such. No, that is not at all what we're saying. In the same way Allah Ta'ala is saying in the Quran, can the blind man and the equal man uh, and the seeing man be equal? No, they're not. They're equal under the law, right? Um, but the seeing man has all kinds of privileges that the blind man does not. The blind man may also have privileges that the seeing man does not. But in terms of our relationship with Allah, there is a whole hierarchy of levels and such. And what is one of the primary methods to raise your rank? It is through knowledge. Okay. Now, what are we speaking about when we're saying knowledge? <coughs> uh, so here at Loyola, we often speak about transformative knowledge. And so, so think of the, the, dif the difference between informative knowledge and transformative knowledge. Informative knowledge is you take this all in and it's useful for whatever the case may be. So what you're doing in biology class, what you're doing in chemistry class, you're taking this in, then you get tested on it, right? Uh, what you'll notice, inshallah, in med school is that there's going to be a lot of bits of knowledge that you're going to start practicing because you're realizing, I need this for health. Okay. Ilm, uh, if it's not being practiced, then it's just informative knowledge, and technically it is not ilm. So I give you a hadith. Um, it is in the form of ilm, but if you're not practicing it, then technically it's not ilm. So for me to raise in my rank with Allah Ta'ala, to be given knowledge, uh, it is not just the words, it's something I'm embodying. And then if I'm embodying it, then I'm transforming as well. And so this, uh, so in all of my khutbahs, you're going to hear me asking, you know, what has changed, what has changed, what has changed about you? And occasionally I'll say it's, it ties into what is the knowledge you're acquiring and how are, what are you doing about it? So one of the problems more of your generation than of my generation, and a lot of people heard this from me, is that my generation, we didn't have too many resources growing up in, in America. There were very few books in English to learn Islam. There were some teachers. Some of the teachers were very good, some not so much, but we didn't have too many teachers. Your generation has a plethora of books, a plethora of teachers, and then on top of that, you have the internet. Okay. So your generation has the challenge of all of this available knowledge. Yeah. And then you have all these crash courses, weekend courses and such. Um, but what you find very often um, of people my age or your age, um, this is not a problem specifically your generation, I'm saying this is what you've grown with, this is a, a new gift for us, is that you'll find a lot of people that are just taking all this stuff in with no change in practice. And that then becomes more like consuming food than actual ilm. And so we have two analogies in, in the Quran that I often make reference to. One is surat al the, the adiyat, and then the other is the donkey carrying books. And what is the behavior of the donkey carrying books? A donkey does what? Goes whatever direction it wants. You have to keep pulling it left and right to make it go straight. Um, and so if you don't do that, and no matter how many books of scholarly knowledge you give it, it's going to go in any direction it wants. Whereas the adiyat, right, these are, in, I'm giving a simple translation, these are like the thoroughbred racehorses. That if you make it go faster, it's going to keep going faster and faster as much as it can, as long as you keep making it go faster, even if it has a heart attack. And while the goal is not for us to die, the, the point being that the goal is to be as though anytime the rider is telling us to go faster, we go faster. If the rider is telling us to stop, we stop. That is ilm. Yeah. And so that is more like the path of the, of the Sahaba. Yeah, I'll be pleased with him.
Okay. Um, let's do another sentence or two. Okay. According to Ibn Abbas. According to Ibn Abbas, عن, he said that the scholars are superior to the believers by 700 levels. Between each level is a journey of 500 years. God said, Say, are those who know equal to those who do not know? Okay, good. So, Abdullah ibn al-Abbas, I think you already know, he's one of the, the young companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him. The Prophet spoke of him as the Mufassir of the Sahabas. He's the one who gives a commentary. And look at this, 700 ranks above the normal believers. Yeah. Between each two of which is a distance of 500 years. Now, now the latter part, think about it this way. That um, we already understand that either I can try to figure out something on my own, or I can be given the knowledge of how to do it. So, you know, the running joke about buying furniture from Ikea is they give you these instructions that are impossible to follow, right. okay, as opposed to a step-by-step -step thing. And so, uh, what a believer can accomplish by performing all the fard. Allah Ta'ala is already saying, nothing pleases me more than when the believer does the fara'id. And then, um, comes, he comes closer and closer to me as he does the nawafil, right? And we're saying through knowledge, and then he says, until I become the eyes with which he sees, yes. and right, get it out, you memorize, mashallah. Uh, but with knowledge, it's you fly at a much faster speed. And there are so many more levels to, to reach. But what's the risk? The risk is the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And that is the lesson of the accursed shaitan. Meaning, knowledge must keep remaining something where my value is based not in comparison to the believers, because then I'm going to fall. Okay, or I'm in the path, potentially going the wrong way. My value is based on how much closer can I get to Allah Ta'ala. So I've made it this far, and now I want to get even closer. And it's one of those things where, let's say, let's say the distance is 500 miles and you travel 499, but now you're so refined, it's another 500 miles. Okay but it's just a much more refined 500 miles. And now you've done 499 of those, and it's a much more refined. And so, so the goal, fundamentally, is not the station. The goal is to get closer to Alatala. Okay, uh, let's stop right here then, and inshallah, so you'll continue with those next sections, and we'll do some more sentences of this, inshallah. And then let's pause this and then come up with the next topic.